Hi, welcome back to the Mob Mentality Show. My name is Austin Chadwick and co-host is Chris Lucian. And today we are most definitely excited to have uh, Joshua Karajewski on the show. And uh, we're talking about his book that just came out, uh, The Joy of Agility, How to Solve Problems and Succeed Sooner. And uh, yeah, super exciting to dig into this. Uh, but before we do, Josh, do you mind giving an introduction for yourself? Hi. Well, thanks again for having me back on the show. Um, I'm the CEO and founder of Industrial Logic. Um, might be well known for a book called Refactoring to Patterns and uh, my newest book, Joy of Agility. It's just been out since March. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah, I have uh, Refactoring to Patterns on my shelf back there. So, <laughs> And uh <clears throat> Yeah, the joy of agility uh, just came out, and uh, you know, I recently read it and thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, there, uh, so many great concepts in there, and uh, I mean, I definitely have some some follow up questions and things. But uh, maybe for those who don't know about the book, you know, do you have a introduction to what it is and why you wrote it and that kind of thing? Yeah, I mean, I really, um, you know, first it, it's the agile. Um, journey that I've been on has been fascinating. And uh, I can say that in some ways, in the early days of the Agile movement, we talked about the umbrella, that Agile is an umbrella for a bunch of different methods. Um, what I can say is the umbrella for me has gotten so much bigger than even that, because I've found agility to be valuable in many aspects of work and life. And in work, not just software, but in all kinds of parts of work. So that really looking at agility across the organization and then agility in our lives. Um, and so in some ways, you know, my what fundamentally when we say when I say joy of agility, I'm talking about agile as a very simple adjective that is uh, about moving with quick, easy grace, or being quick, resourceful, and adaptable. A surgeon can be agile. A lawyer can be agile. A basketball team can be agile, um, right? It's agility. And this book is about agility. It's not, you know, it, it applies to all kinds of human endeavors, including, of course, the software field. Um, but I wanted a book that I could give to anyone and say, here's what it means to be agile. Here's a bunch of stories that illustrate agility in many aspects of work and life. Um, you know, have at it. Uh, like basically, let's give you some joy about how wonderful it is to be agile. And that's that's why I wrote the book. Yeah, for sure. No, I absolutely love it. And <clears throat> I like the title a lot, The Joy of Agility, because uh, in my personal life and in my software development life, uh, the kind of principles you, you talk about in the book the more I kind of uh, embedded those into how I operate, it, it does lead to more joy. It does lead to more uh, satisfaction with things. And uh, one of the first things that jump out to me was, I think it's uh, it's at least near the beginning of the book, but I love how you uh, described agility because I think kind of being in the software field, you see the word thrown out a lot. And there it almost seems like there's these like two... Uh, si uh, horns of the dilemma that people grapple onto when they think when they're talking about it and so like oh agility that means fast and then I've been on teams that are like oh let's be agile and they just start cranking out stuff really fast but as you said it's like unbalanced right or it's not uh, 
uh, it's the quality is low. And then they're like, you know, I don't think that's what's meant by being agile here. And uh, so your whole section on the wooden way where you're, you're finding balance, you're not hurrying and it's quickness under control. Like that whole idea, like really stuck with me of like, it's a, it's a good way to like go right down the middle between the, the two horns of the dilemma. Like, you know, we're, we're talking about being quick, but we're not talking about being out of control, <laughs> you know? Right. Right. And, uh, and, uh, you know, it was funny growing up. I had, uh, my family, uh, was into coach wooden. And I think when I was younger, I read a book by him and, uh, what was your introduction to him and how did you connect the two worlds? <laughs> That's a great question. Um, I've been hearing his name for years. Um, I don't remember where I, when I very first started hearing about coach wooden, um, it's hard to say. Um, I know Jim Highsmith would talk about him quite a bit. Um, mm. Jim's one of the signers of the Agile Manifesto. He has a new book out too. Uh, and yeah, I mean, the concept, so, you know, in basically here, here's part, part of why it became so important. Um, the book begins with some very clear definitions of the word agile, right? And again, that has the word quick in it. But of course we know agile does not equal quick. I mean, it, it's got to have those other characteristics. You know, there's a Venn diagram, if you will, and it's right there in the center of the Venn. So quick, resourceful, and adaptable, great. All three are needed. Or quick, easy, grace, all three. But the word quick is there, so you have to understand it. What does that word mean? And it doesn't mean hurrying and rushing, right? And so uh, mon the mantra that Coach Wooden would, would spend the most amount of time on according to his players, right? He co-wrote a book with one of his players called be quick, but don't hurry. Um, and many of the other players uh, commented on his his relentless focus on this, which was, you have got to play in this way that you're, you are super quick, but it's controlled quickness. It's not complete chaos. You, you're falling down and you somehow make the basket. Even if you make the basket, Wooden would say, he'd blow the whistle and go, nope. That's not repeatable. That's not yeah. something we can execute on over and over again. Um, what the thing that blows me away the most is the story of one of his players said, we would practice so much at such high speed that when we actually played real games with, with opponents, it felt like slow motion. <laughs> and the counter to that was that, you know, high school superstars who are now in college and on John Wooden's team they were the ones who had to be slowed down. They were going too fast, uncontrolled, um, hurrying and hustling and not playing in control. So he had to slow them down. He spent a lot of time slowing them down. And then once they learned the wooden way, speeding up and speeding up and speeding up to the point where, you know, so that that's a, a such an invaluable mantra and um, I mean, even today, you know, we're working on a, an addendum to a contract with a customer, right? And that client is pushing us to get it done. And I'm saying to our team, you know, this is important. We do need to get this done, but we're not going to hurry because this addendum is important. So we're going to be quick. You know, we're focused yeah. on it. We're not looking at anything else, but we're also not going to hurry. Don't so it comes up all the time. Yeah. Yeah. Not sabotaging your ability to reproduce results con consistently quickly. Right. That's right. That's right. Yeah. That's yeah, awesome. Yeah. Yeah. And 
I think in each, what's cool about it, and and it kind of ties into your your overall thing. Like what I noticed in the book is it's like a bunch of principles or proverbs, and then stories tied to them, right? And so, That's right. and the the nice thing about principles or proverbs is they're they're generic and true enough that you can think of them and apply them in a situation. But then there's a lot of details that you need to figure out yourself in that situation. So like with code, not hurrying, you know might mean, you know, uh, you know, writing tests or, you know, refactoring and things. So your, your code is in a stable state for every change you make and you have, you know, conscious ability of, uh, how you're doing it as opposed to just turning out more code and more features and that kind of thing. And what was funny is after I read your chapter on, uh, the wooden way, I'm, uh, coaching a kid's flag football team and, and it's like third graders. Right. And so when you start telling them like, Hey, run to the line quickly and hustle, you know, they're like out of control and, you know, kicking each other and messing around. And so using that phrase of like, Hey, let's be quick, but don't hurry, you know, be under control. And and that seemed to help them quite a bit, you know, to like kind of a focusing point. And so, That's yeah, cool. I love that it, it applies to, uh, uh, so many different things. And, uh, yeah, another thing that was kind of an aha moment for me with uh, what your book talked about and agility uh, was this concept of poised to adapt. Um, yes. yes. So uh, what I what I liked about it because you know, you know, full time job doing software engineering, being poised to adapt means that the the code, the product is in a state where it's it's not scary, it's not hard to change it, right? Yeah. It's yeah. Ease ease of change. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but I like that phrasing of it because I feel like uh, it's easy, you know, when you're speaking with other developers to speak in terms that they can understand, right? Like, you know, how, how hard is it to add a feature or, uh, you know, modify this code? But when you're speaking at a higher level, what what words to use and being poised to add, adapt is uh, really helped me a lot. Um, yeah. What was your some of your inspiration for that phrasing? Yeah. I mean, um, th- this is where I I, I would just do a sort of shout out to the fact that um, I've been involved in this Agile stuff since the 1990s. Writing this book taught me a tremendous amount, um, coming up with these mantras. Um, and I didn't make them all up, right? Be quick, but don't hurry. It's from John Wooden. <laughs> Be poised to adapt is not my own creation. It's from the folks who are involved in um, resilience engineering. Mm. Okay. So there are these incredible gurus in resilience engineering who use that term, be poised to adapt. Um, and then some. I did make up one of the mantras, which is be balanced and graceful. Okay, now why those words, right? Um, well, there's a connection there between being quick uh, but not hurrying and being poised to adapt. You have this need to be in balance, right? So let's say, for example, that you know someone comes along and says, I need you to make this change to the software. And you go and you look and you're like, oh, okay, well, I'm going to have to change it here and there and there and there and there and there and there, all these places. You're not actually poised to adapt, right? You need to adapt to the software, but you're not poised because you didn't refactor. You've got duplicated logic spread all over the damn place. And so when you're asked to make a behavior change, it's awkward and it's going to take more time to do. You're potentially your uh, refactoring or simplifying the design is not in equilibrium. It's not in balance. You're not doing enough of it. You're doing a lot of development work, but you're not doing enough refactoring. So you, you're you're not in balance. And when you're not in balance, you can't be quick. 
And when you are in balance, you are poised. Because to be poised means to be in a state of equilibrium. You're poised, you're ready to adapt. So when you've done that work and refactored and simplified the design, the design is in a state of being poised to adapt. It's malleable very quickly. So you can see all three mantras right there. Be, be quick, but don't hurry. Be balanced and graceful and be poised to adapt. They're all very much connected. I love it. Yeah. And yeah, and I, I think it ties right back into the uh, uh, Agile Manifesto with uh, responding to change, right? And I was, I was just looking yes. up, it was the uh, competitive advantage, right? To mm -hmm. uh, be able to change requirements, right? And follow the market, right? And so, you know, that's, that's definitely that sweet spot. Because if you're, I think, Chris and I, you were talking about at one point where um, we were working on something that... Uh, might have even been uh, later to the market than another product, but it is made in such a way that once it's in the market, um, it can adapt to the market much faster than something else that was written a different way, right? And so <laughs> just having a product that works uh, is if you're in a, a fast changing market, like most of us, <laughs> uh, is is not as important as being able to adapt it and uh that's right yeah and it reminds me i i wonder if uh i heard the story of the, some of the people who signed the agile manifesto that they were at a conference panel where it was like if you could have only the product code and no tests or only the tests what would you pick <laughs> and then i think th then the they, they asked the clarifying question like uh you know is this product going to last you know, is it going to stay around or not? Right. And I think, uh, and the debate was, well, the test, because that makes it, once we fulfill the test again, that makes it easier to change where if it was just a static set of product code, right. Or something like that. And mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. That, that definitely resonates with me quite a bit. Um, Were yeah. You, uh, so, so these stories are kind of a collection of things that you you've come across over time um, were these stories used uh, as as a way to, I don't know, convince people of agility? Like, how did how did you determine whether or not a story belonged in a particular chapter or uh, belonged in the book? Yeah, great question. Um, so, yeah, the stories are a com combination. Some of them are my own personal experiences. Um, some of them are the experiences of other people, either friends or folks I've met along the way, or famous people. Um, and some of them are, you know, stories of, uh, you know, just stories I've heard in, in the past that I just felt were extremely valuable in, in communicating an aspect of agility, right? So, you know, I one I tell all the time is uh, about Sir Richard Branson. And this was before he was a Sir, you know, and famous. He was in the uh, British Virgin Islands in the late 1970s. And he and his girlfriend were due to fly to Puerto Rico. And they went to the airport. They got to the terminal. And it turned out the flight was canceled. Just like, you know, it wasn't a weather issue. It was a beautiful day. And then so all these passengers are waiting around trying to like decide what do we do? Because they just canceled the flight. We have no idea when they're going to rebook it. 
most people in that situation so that's an obstacle it's a it's an impediment it's it's an unexpected event what do you do richard branson was incredibly resourceful he was quickly and he was quick adaptable and resourceful in that moment in other words he was an agile traveler he did something all of us could have done he walked to a phone booth they had phone booths back then. Okay, right. No, no, no mobile phones back in the late 70s. Can you he define walked, a phone booth for me? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> he, so, he, so he walks to a phone booth. He then looks up a charter airline in the, in the you know, yellow pages or whatever it was, the book, calls them and asks how much would it cost to fly one way from the British Virgin Islands to Puerto Rico, got the price, asked, he asked how many seats are on the plane, did the math and figured out it was about $39 US to fly one way to Puerto Rico. Then he made a makeshift sign out of some cardboard he found. And he walked around the airport saying one way flight to port to Puerto Rico, $39 US. And he sold out the flight and they flew uneventfully to Puerto Rico. This is now when I say any of us could have done this, right? It, it was just a phone call and a little bit of math, not even complicated math. Right. But who has the, you know, the kind of thinking like this to be that resourceful in a situation where you're stuck? So there is a mantra, one of my favorite mantras in the book is the one in the very end. It's called be readily resourceful. Readily means without hesitation. That's another John Woodenism, which is he wanted his players to be flowing, not hesitating. Hesitating makes you lose games. No hesitation right? So to be readily resourceful is you are resourceful without hesitation. You immediately become resourceful in the face of an obstacle. He was a agile traveler that day. Um, and I, I, I love the story because it's, it's just most of us would not do that. We would have gone into a cafe. We would have read a book. We would have walked around. We wouldn't have thought to like go get a charter airline. <laughs> and that's a, that's an example of a story that's not mine but it, to me it illustrates an aspect or to me that illustrates you know pure agility mm. other stories illustrate aspects of agility that i really want to focus on yeah and and i like that a lot uh the the the, the tie-in of kind of principles or proverbs with stories because they each need each other right <laughs> yes it, it, yes and uh, we're all very human. And so the story part really brings to life <clears throat> how it would work out in a situation, right? Mm -hmm. uh, where, you know, I guess a principle just sitting alone might feel kind of abstract and ethereal, right? Where the the stories help flush it out um, of what it would look like. And yeah, so and I can speak to that for a minute because mm -hmm. I, I want to give uh, credit there. Um, for years, I've had a book on my, on my desk um, called Selling the Invisible. And it's a marketing book, right? And when you're running your own small business, you better damn well learn how to do a little bit of marketing um, or you're going to be dead meat. So um, I went to the bookstore one year and found this book and it seemed like a good book. So I picked it up and and it's all stories that end with these kind of proverbs. That's it. That's the book. Um, and I fell in love with this book. And it it not, when I say I fell in love with it, it gave me so much guidance um, that it spurred me to action, okay, to taking action. So this was a practical book, a pragmatic book, kind of book you read and you do stuff with, 
You don't just theoretically read it and enjoy the ideas. You actually use it. I wanted to write a book like that. And what I found about that book that was so amazing was those stories he told would stick to my brain and influence me. So the stories that I came up with here were the ones that I find to be the most sticky, the most impactful, the most um, moving, that would move a person to action. And that's the entire point of the book. Let's help you become more agile. I'm going to tell some stories. I'm going to give you some you know, final proverbs at the end in bold text. And then and then eventually this organized into these um, six mantras, which was something that came towards the very end and, you know, evolved out of the stories. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I think, yeah, the stories really uh, give some teeth to it. And uh, uh, one of them, because you, you already mentioned resourcefulness, I definitely do got to get to ensembling because that was mentioned in the book. And this is the mom mentality show. So we'll definitely get to that. But uh, one other thing was uh, on the resourcefulness, um, it was really key uh, message you, you when I when I read it, it, it was really applicable to the moment we are in uh, with some teams I'm working on about being resourceful in your learning, right? And so that, um, you know, instead of just faulting yourself for not knowing something, right? You know, kind of like you're saying with uh, that story with Richard, where you you keep trying things uh, to find a better explanation, book, teacher, process until you can get yourself uh, that that learning you need, right? And uh, yes, and that kind of uh, persistence uh, and diligence and not giving up <laughs> is so key. And uh, and this was tied to you for learning Greek, I think. <laughs> yes, I, I yeah I, I I studied ancient Greek in, in back in the university, and um, you know I I had taken French for many years in like you know ele elementary school towards the end of elementary school, then a little then in middle school, and then in high school, and I was never a great language student, right? I I, I just I had convinced myself. That I wasn't very good at memorizing. And I poo-pooed memorization. I was like, well, I'm not good at it, but you know what? Real, real knowledge has nothing to do with memorizing facts or things. So who cares? But it, it was kind of a handicap. Like, I'm just not very good at it. So whatever, I'll get, I'll get C's and B minuses in French and whatever. But then I went to college and at, at my school, we had to study ancient Greek. And uh, I was like, all right, I'm going to do really well with this. I worked hard and I didn't do well. And that was freshman year. And I was like, damn, you know. <laughs> um, but I ended up going to a, a summer program in New York City uh, called the Latin Greek Institute, which was 10 weeks of pure hell, 18 hours a day of, of ancient Greek. And, I, and I'm not kidding. I mean, this was six semesters of college level Greek in 10 weeks. Okay. Insanity. <laughs> <laughs> you are living and breathing and reading and translating and writing ancient Greek all day long. You're studying for tests every day, uh, taking tests every day, and just insane amount of memorization. So long story short is uh, it was extremely hard, but I did it. And I learned to write index cards and memorize and my, and learned and learned that I had no issues with memorization whatsoever. I'm perfectly capable of memorizing large amounts of stuff. Just had to like do the work, dig in 
and you know believe in myself and all that um but there was no handicap there was all nonsense and the way they taught ancient greek was entirely different from anything i'd ever experienced in terms of learning a language from day one they said you're going to learn every single way to you know say or read the word some some verb so you know the principle of the fool comes in he says okay repeat after me everyone Luo, luso, eluso, laloka, lalamaya, lufane. And you're like, what? What did you just say? <laughs> and he's like, well, luo means to loosen. And we just said to loosen in every single way you could possibly say it. I am loosening. I loosened. I was loosening. I might loosen. You know, like every single way. And then, then you have to say it for I and and you and she and he and you and we and this, you know, all the declensions. So you have one verb is 36. It's, you know, six times six um, words you have to memorize. And then that's just one verb. That night they'll give you, I don't know, 10 verbs to learn. Um, and so you have to do massive amount of memorization for that, including vocabulary words, just the, you know, nouns and stuff. That's for one night's homework. <laughs> and but the thing was you're not saying well you're you're new to greek so we're just going to start with the present tense of the verb <laughs> no we're giving you all the tenses so you're going to be able to see that verb luo in any context in any way it's ever been said and you're going to know how to translate it now that was intense and it was a different way of teaching and i found it worked really well for me of course you know talk about low to zero whip you know the only thing in my life was was Greek that summer. <laughs> I didn't have a, a and they said in the literature, if you have a second job or if you have, even they said, if you have family issues, don't take this course. I mean, they don't, <laughs> they're like, you've got to be 100% focused if you're going to do this. Mm. And we lost a lot of people, right? They said, from, I'll never forget sitting there the first day, they're like, two thirds of you won't be here by the end. <laughs> <We're> <laughs> like, Oh my God. And you're looking around at your fellow people in the audience going like, who's going to get shot? You know, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, uh, it was crazy. But the, what it taught me was that um, a lot of self-imposed limitations we put on ourselves are not really there. Mm -hmm. And that the approach one takes to learn something is really important. So I learned that, you know, if I encounter something that's not making sense to me, doesn't help me get where I want to go. I'll just find another teacher, another book, another. So when I taught myself object-oriented programming in the late 1980s, the first book I was studying from was the Turbo Pascal 5.5 manual that came from, you know, Borland. And it didn't make sense. You know, <laughs> I was just banging my head against the wall. What the hell are they saying here? And so I was like, screw it. I'm going to find another book. And it was some book called Turbo, you know, Object-Oriented Programming with Turbo Pascal found that and they had a beautiful simple example uh and it just like polymorphism clicked mm. and so that's how i became just like well i'm not going to fault myself because of this borland book i'm just going to find a better book but get around an obstacle you mm -hmm. know don't don't uh, get stuck i think it's just um, the trying that's, different that's, things yeah. and yeah sorry so i was going to say uh just trying trying different things is a little bit of resourcefulness as well as like it sure is quickly identifying where an impasse is and then pivoting i see i see a lot of people just go in the same direction forever 
um, with my learning, this it was, it was kind of a similar thing where it's like, as, as soon as I, ch I switched to listening to material instead of reading it, then I retained it a lot better. That's different for other people. But I think for a long time, I never, I never thought to pivot to listening to the material. Um, and so, so yeah, I, uh, stories around the encourage, uh, encouragement of pivoting is, uh, probably very, uh, very useful to somebody's uh, journey and agility. I think. Yes, absolutely. And and it, it clicked big for me in the moment because uh, uh, it related to another concept you talked about, which was learned helplessness, right? Where you kind of are stuck in like, well, I'm not good at this or this doesn't work or, you know, uh, our, this doesn't work for our team because of this. And just kind of taking on that like extreme ownership of like, no, let's do something about this. Let's try this. Let's try this. Let's brainstorm or experiment, come up with different ways to, and I've seen that resourcefulness work out so huge for teams. And it's almost, it almost follows like a satire change curve that you talk about in your book too, where, you know, experiments one through 10, you just feel like you're in the mud and never, it never will come out again. Right. But then it's like experiment 11 and then it's beautiful. Like we figured out a way where we work with this other team and our collaboration is going strong, you know, what I mean? and then so it's whatever it is, you know, whether it's learning or anything else. And so just that ability to not give up and keep trying different things, uh, you know, that that huge win may just be a, a few experiments away. Uh, it might be 50 away. And <laughs> I've yeah. been there, too. But <laughs> well, and, you know, there's some stories in there about creating a culture that values experimentation mm -hmm. and allows people to experiment instead of like you know, an idea is suggested and a product owner shoots it down, um, give people an ability to try it out, experiment. Yeah, um, right. You know, Amazon's done that. It, it, there is an investment in allowing to, in, for that kind of infrastructure where you can test some idea out, you know, for low cost or in a way that won't impact too many customers. Mm -hmm. But you can test the idea rather than it just being rejected. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, a, it's a culture of experimentation that um, allows for that you know, kind of learning to happen. Not easily done. None of this is easy, by the way. I mean, this is not <laughs> agile is easy. One, two, three. You know, this is uh, agility is is a challenge. Um, it's a lifelong challenge. It's a challenge in any human endeavor to become more and more and more agile. Um, it just means looking at where are you getting stuck? Where are you hitting up against too much friction? Right, where are you not prepared? You're unbalanced. So when the thing the change comes along, you're you don't know how to deal with it. Um, how can you become more supple um, and fluid and flowing, no hesitation? You know, these are these are these are hard things. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it, it almost once you kind of get the habit, it almost becomes fun to like, oh, this is a this is an R and D challenge, you know, and. Um, I see it a lot in, uh, from a technical perspective in your book, uh, refactoring to patterns and I'm, I'm going working through feathers book right now, uh, working effectively with legacy code. And what's awesome about it is these are very tough problems and they're not easy with code, right. To get something under test or to make it, you know, easy to change. But what's amazing when you read through, uh, books like those is it's like, there are lots of things to try. And in once you, you know, you find the right pattern or right refactoring or right seam for the situation, then it all clicks, right? And so, um, and maybe that ties into our next topic is, 
it's it's harder alone for sure <laughs> to pick up these things um but it's also much easier with the group in many ways and uh you know you definitely highlighted ensemble and a, a, a ensembling and mobbing in a couple ways in your book and uh one was in relation to heroics and then another was uh uh it's i guess it was like results and when learning but uh yeah yeah how does uh, ensembling and heroics uh uh relate to each other uh, for you <laughs> Well, I mean, we we we've seen for years when people, you know, try to be heroic or work, you know, solo or try to fix things solo. There, a lot of times, the results are are temporary because you know um, others don't necessarily know what they did to solve the problem or why did they have to be a hero in the first place? Or why do we have to have a culture that rewards heroism when, in fact, we could be just working at a nice, steady state and getting quality work done? where we don't need heroics, you know, um, that's, that's much more ideal, right? So there's some, a story in there about someone that, you know, had to basically change some code, introduced a bug. It was costing this mobile phone company a ton of money per day because of this broken software. And then the same person who made the change went in and heroically fixed it. Um, and, but it was all done without safety. The change was never really done safely. So there's a big safety part of the book too, right? Because without safety, you can't really be excellent. Mm -hmm. um, you can't be quick. You can't be a lot of these things without safety. So those two go hand in hand, right? Uh, you know, working quickly by being safe. The heroics, yeah, it, it was a it was a quick heroic thing, but it was not graceful at all because they were fixing a, a problem that shouldn't have existed in the first place uh, if it had been done well. So the ensemble stuff, I mean, I've loved, but I don't just apply ensembling to coding. Uh, I've always found, you know, whatever I'm working on, I want to involve other people to help make it better. You know, so it, it's kind of like, well, when do you do that? Um, you know, years ago, we, we were creating a holiday, you know, greeting from Industrial Logic. And I paired up with someone and we produced, uh, we, we looked over a bunch of static images to pick out an image. And then we would put some nice fonts on there and wording and this and that. And we thought this is pretty good. And then we, uh, once we had done all that work and the card was pretty much done and ready to go, then and only then did we show it to Miguel, our designer in Brazil. And he says, this doesn't look like a holiday card to me. It's like a, you've got this snowy image of a tree with no leaves. It looks, it looks horrible. I was like, Oh God, I hadn't thought of it that way. <laughs> so neither myself or my pair had thought of that, but by, by involving Miguel, eventually we realized we had to redo the darn thing. Now, had we ensembled with him from the beginning and had that more diversity of perspective, we wouldn't have stumbled down that path. Right. So it depends on what you're doing, but I believe that, you know, mobbing is um, a wonderful practice that applies to many creative endeavors. Um, you know, even that, even that's working on an addendum to a contract, like I mentioned earlier, just got out of a meeting with two colleagues where the three of us were working on it and we all come with different perspectives. Yeah. So, and then from there, it goes on to some other people to review it because it's an important addendum um multiple many minds working on something and there's a story in there about um benjamin franklin 
you know, this was a story that I actually had already told in refactoring to patterns, but I decided to retell it here in Joy of Agility because I love it so much. And um, maybe I'll wait for you to buy the book to hear more about that story. But uh, it's it's a great story of ensembling to create a um, a sign for uh, for a store, and it it also impacted the 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 you know. Declaration of Independence. The Declaration of Independence went through lots of revisions and stuff like that. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think that diversity of opinion is so key. And with Ensemble, and you get it right away, which is fantastic. And uh, yeah, the Benjamin Franklin story with the naming, it, it, it totally reminded me of uh, <laughs> uh, the naming process you go through sometimes where it's like, you know, we start with these really long kind of crazy names. And then eventually after quite a few uh, cycles of refactoring, it's like this simple thing, but it's just mm -hmm. like, that's it. You know, like, that's it. That's it says it concisely, you know? And I also think in sampling so great, it happened to us this past week uh, with uh, interpersonal interactions. Right. And so, mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I, for, for some reason when, you know, there's conflict or there's, you know, hard problem solving R and D going on, the mode I go into is like, I hear what people are saying, I think about them, and then I respond. And so it's like, I'm tuning out a ton of other stuff that's important. And there's someone else on our team who's very more perceptive and picks up on body, you know, body language and kind of social cues and things. And so um, what's great about that is we come out of an interaction and they're like, well, we need to follow up and, you know, make sure this person's okay or that they felt heard and these kinds of things where... I'm like, well, they didn't say anything, so I didn't hear it, you know. And so, um, yeah, so it's it's just been so helpful in so many of those things. And uh, mm -hmm. yeah, that, that's a big win. And then you talked about it uh, also in regards to, you tied it back to, uh, kind of back to your college days at, at St. John's where uh, with books, and then you did it with tech books, and then now with software development, you know, so uh, Yes. You want to talk yes. about that transition a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, at my my school, it's called St. John's College. Um, and it's a it's a great book school. So you study the great books of the Western world for four years um in math and science and literature and all these different things. What I discovered there was, you know, when you read a book, let's say Homer's Iliad, um, which we have to read the, the summer before we go to school for the first time. Um Basically, I thought, well, yeah, it's a famous war novel. Okay, I've read it now. Great. But then I get to, you know, St. John's College and we have our first seminar, which is, you know, basically two hours of talking about a book with a bunch of other students and two people in the room who are called tutors. They're professors, but they're called tutors in the Oxford style. They're considered the most advanced students in the class. And you sit there and they start with an opening question about the book, a question that gets you thinking on a deeper level. This particular question they asked, as I recall, was about, you know, fate versus free will. And it's a beautifully worded question where maybe they read a few passages from different parts of the book and then ask you this question that you have to think deeply about. And then for the next two hours, we're trying to answer this question. And we go deeper and deeper and deeper into the book. And you start to realize this book has layers that I never, ever uncovered, that I never thought about. I read it at a superficial level. But now with my colleagues in this two-hour seminar, I'm discovering depths of this book that I had no idea were there. And it's a sort of style of group learning that um, I fell in love with because, you know, it was so insightful and exciting, you know, to discover things I hadn't read, but were there. Right. So years later, I took that model 
a seminar model and brought it to the Design Pattern Study Group of New York City, where we started studying design patterns and all kinds of patterns books and did that for many, many years. Um, it's, uh, it's a great way to, to really get deeply into an important book. Um, but yeah, it's the same concept, right? It's, it's a bunch of different people together working on something. And uh, yeah, it doesn't mean I don't read alone, you know, but uh, <laughs> you know, it's, it's trying to make sense of things does it, it ends up going really well when it's in an ensemble that said, I think you can be, sometimes you might say, let's try some pairing here mm -hmm. and we might have multiple pairs working on something yeah. other times. Hey, I want to do this individually. Yeah. You know, if you're consistently making safety a prerequisite, that's the most important thing. Mm -hmm. You know, how do you approach your work and what's the context? And that's where I think it's good to be adaptable. Yeah. 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 And that, that, that same excitement. Uh, yeah, I totally agree. Yeah. Experiment is experiment, inspect, adapt, find out what works for you. And, you know, certain things call for different styles of collaboration or solo work. And that, that's fantastic. And, but that same excitement you're talking about with that book, uh, I feel that when we mob on code and I feel that when I do that same style of discussion with my kids, when we're reading a book together or with friends, you know, and so yeah. and there is, there is joy to that. And there is such deep learning that comes from that and some really quality work. And so, yeah, I, I love that tie in kind of going back to ancient Socrates to code today. And there's this bridge of style of learning and getting things done. So I think that's super cool. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I can add on to that, which is I'm I've been lately I've been reading some books on Stoicism and oh, uh yeah. you know, Ryan Holiday has a bunch of books, and of course he's he's all over the internet. And um I'm I'm reading the the obstacle is the way. Mm. And it's a it's a nice read. Um and as I'm reading it, I'm thinking of a book called Joy of Agility because I can't believe he's saying like I hadn't read his book before I wrote this book, but he's saying a lot of the same stuff that I'm saying. Yes. And you know, he literally even says it's really important to be balanced and graceful. And I'm like, <laughs> wow, that's it. That's a mantra in my book. Um, or he'll talk about, you know, how people overcome obstacles, you know, and, and how the obstacle kind of gives you an opportunity from which to learn, you know, and that's being readily resourceful is all about approaching obstacles in this way that we're readily resourceful in, tr in terms of looking at it as a way to help us you know, find a way around the obstacle, um, discover a way to su succeed sooner. So um, it's it's all there. Ancient The ancient Stoics, I think, were found ways to be agile. They weren't using the word like that, but to me, the same lessons are there uh, about agility. Yeah, yeah, it's funny. Uh, I know, Chris, we're getting close on time, but one more thing we got to close and geeking out here. But uh, yeah, I totally agree. Reading, you know, the classics all throughout history and ancient works and, uh, you know, whether it's fiction, nonfiction, philosophy, that stuff, uh, you know, so much of what we do today is rediscovering what was there before. And uh, me and a coworker who's uh, he's a, a geek about Roman history. We did uh, it was it was partly serious, partly not serious lightning talk on uh classic agile where we go through ancient quotes and talk about how it relates to agility or mobbing and things. And, uh, Oh, wonderful. Yeah. It's, it's there, it's there in a lot mm -hmm. of ways, you know? And so it's, it's pretty fun. Uh, but... I, I believe it. Yeah. absolutely. <laughs> all, all these right. ideas. Yeah. They're all, they're all, you know, yeah. stuff we're rediscovering. Yes. <laughs> I'm i uh, I'm being the traffic cop role here and making sure we stay on time. Uh, so, um, 
Josh, would you like to plug or share anything? Uh, I know, you know, please buy the book, but anything else before we sign off here? Uh, I mean, that's it. I, I'm trying to get the word out a little bit about the book. Um, I, I Especially for those folks who think that they know Agile already, I would highly encourage you to pick up the book and read it. It's also good for young people who aren't maybe in the tech field who maybe need to get inspired. Um, there's tons of stories of entrepreneurs in here on this book about things they did when they were in a tough spot and how they overcame obstacles. Um, it's meant to bring joy. I think that if you're not experiencing joy at work or in whatever you're doing, that maybe you need more agility and maybe you can find ways to you know learn that. So awesome. it's uh, it's a book I hope that many people study and read. Um, it's at, I've, I've heard it's at libraries now too. So you don't even have wow. to buy it. You can go to the library and get it. Um, and there's an audio version. There is a digital version and there's of course a print version. So all major book carriers have it. Fantastic. Well, thank you very much for being on the show. And uh, to our audience, uh, maybe you know somebody that maybe has the quick and resourceful part, but isn't adaptable, or uh, maybe doesn't meet some other part of the Venn diagram, then please share this episode with them. Uh, make sure that they they get an idea for what this might be about. And, uh, you know, like, subscribe and share. And uh, again, thanks, Joshua. And thanks to our audience for joining us. And we'll see you all next time. Thanks, Chris. Thanks, Austin. Thanks. Bye, everybody. Bye.